Jesus, I trust in you. Jesus, I trust in you. When my heart is overwhelmed, I will look to you alone. God, my rock, God, my rock, God, my rock. You will stand when others fall. You are faithful through it all. God, my rock, God, my rock, God, my rock. And Father, I pray that our trust in you would be well apparent through our obedience and through our adherence to your word. And so once again, Lord, as we look at your Old Testament, as we look at these verses written so long ago, it's for our understanding that we would understand, Lord, how you move in our lives and how you move through our lives. So as we get into your word, we pray that you would bless us, speak to us, and instruct us. And as you do, God, I pray that we will glorify your holy name, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you turn and greet your neighbors? Greetings. Greetings. And the guy in the back. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to First Chronicles. First Chronicles, we're going to pick up at chapter 17. We started First Chronicles about a month ago, and so we've been going pretty rapidly through it. My intent was to do a survey of both First and Second Chronicles, and so we are not doing a verse-by-verse Bible study, but we're kind of hitting the highlights. And so as we enter into chapter 17, the Ark of the Covenant of God has been brought into Jerusalem amongst much celebration. David was excited, Israel's excited, because now God is dwelling amongst his people. Again, the Ark was the picture to the Jewish mind of the throne of God, and it symbolized God living amongst his people. But as this is going on, David notices something. The house that he lives in, we saw previously, well, he had built himself a pretty nice house, but God's tent is pretty plain. And recognizing the priority of God, David makes a request, and in this request you need to see the heart that he has for the Lord. But in chapter 17, verses 1 and 2, it says, Now it came to pass, when David was dwelling in his house, that David said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar. But the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under tent curtains. Then Nathan said to David, Do all that is in your heart, for God is with you. And so we see the expression of this heart before God, that he understands the priority needs to be the Lord. And so he's speaking to his friend Nathan, who also happens to be a prophet. And we kind of have our first point here, and the people that we surround ourselves with. Nathan turned out to be very valuable in David's life. Now, Nathan the prophet is an example of the influences that we should all associate ourselves with in our Christian lives. Who is it that you ask for advice? Who is it that you go to when you're dealing with hardship? Well, Nathan, being a prophet, he's a man who is spiritually gifted. He's a man who is filled with the Holy Spirit as he is a prophet, and he is going to be giving his influence and his advice is going to be under the direction of God. Remember, to be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Because he is a prophet, he's also a man of the Word of God. He's not giving his great ideas, but the things that he has given has been given to him through God's Word. 
He's also an encourager who has vision for the future based upon what God may do. He's understanding the permanence of this kingdom that God's desiring to build. And he understands that God is going to want a temple, just not at that point. He doesn't understand that just yet. But he sees the importance of making God the center of all that they do and who they are. And then he is also, later on, actually we don't see it in Chronicles, but in Second Samuel, he's also willing to tell David of the hard things when, well, they can be so difficult to hear. Nathan is going to be the one that the Lord used to confront David when he had an affair with another man's wife, and it was just a mess. It was about six-month period of time. Nathan approaches him, and the reason is to bring David to the point of repentance. Because if David's not brought to the point of repentance, he's forever stewing in his sin. David thought a lot of this man because he would go on to name one of his uh, sons after him. We're told in Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen, as iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the continents of his friends. Iron sharpens iron, same similar surfaces that sharpen one another to the Lord, that set our face before the Lord and keeps us there. Again, we should all have a godly influence in our lives. Our spouses, without a doubt, but in other aspects of our lives, very valuable. And so that's what church is fostered to do. We're told not to forsake the gathering together of the brethren, especially as we see the day approaching our hard times coming. And so as we surround ourselves with the people of the church, in essence, that's what we're doing. We're preparing ourselves for the difficult day when our trial, day of our trial comes, but we're also prepared to minister to others. Again, the ministry in the church, and I call it ministry. Ministry is when we're in the fellowship area. Don't think of it as a formalized ministry that you sign up for. But this is just meeting one another's needs and having my needs met in the body of Christ. I have never seen anybody spiritually healthy who does not come consistently to church. And everyone I know who does not come to church consistently is not spiritually healthy. It's just an observation, but I know of no exceptions. Another aspect of this godly friend of David is he's not afraid to hear from God and then to make the adjustments necessary. So Nathan, here's what David wants to do. He hears the heart of this man and tells him it sounds like a good idea. I mean, what could be better than to build this monument to the Lord? But then God meets him and he sees that this isn't really the will of God after all. Verses 3 through 15. So it happened that night that the word of God came to Nathan saying, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, You shall not build me a house to dwell in. For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought up Israel, even to this day, but have gone from tent to tent and from one tabernacle to another. I imagine as one tabernacle would wear out, they would build another. Verse 6, wherever I have moved about with all Israel, have I ever spoken a word to any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you. Now, he's reminding David, and and this is an important concept. And and maybe partly, I mean, David was a man of war, and that's not who God wanted to build his, his house. 
but also maybe David had a little bit of an improper perspective of, we're doing well, I've done well for myself, what am I able to do for God? And maybe he just lost, again, not with evil intent, but just lost a little bit of perspective, and God's reminding him here, David, it's not about what you're able to do for me, it's all about what I'm able to do for you. Now, he appreciates the heart, because David is a man after God's own heart, without a doubt. But as far as this, he says, Now, therefore, verse 7, Thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheephold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all of your enemies from before you, and have made you a name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously. Since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, also I will subdue all of your enemies. Furthermore, I tell you that the Lord will build you a house. Now, when he says the Lord will build you a house, what he's talking about here is the Lord is going to build him a dynasty. A dynasty, well, we know this, and I'll read on in a minute, but this is to be a dynasty that is going to, well, it's God's intent, and it came to pass, that it would last forever. Verse 11, And it shall be when your days are fulfilled, when you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up your seed after you, who will be of your sons, and I will establish the kingdom. So sons, plural, not talking about a son, not talking about Solomon, or even necessarily Solomon's son, but somewhere in the future, this seed. Verse 12, He shall build me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. I will not take mercy away from him as I took it from him who was before you, King Saul. And I shall establish him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. And so apparently the next day, Nathan approached David and told him what he had heard from the Lord. Now, before the Lord will build a building, God will build the character of a man who has been called to build it. And that's what David's dealing with here in Solomon. I'm sorry, with David, and then later on in Solomon, many other kings, and we never really saw it come to pass. But God has promised a great dynasty. Now, we know and we understand that the only place that this has come to fruition is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, we get a little bit more details in Second Samuel, in Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, parallel of what we're reading here, when God tells David, I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. And so what we see here in this promise, it can be confusing, but if we look in the Hebrew and the language and see the intent of what was being spoken of here, the idea behind the term commits iniquity is if he be bent over in a stance implying a great physical or emotional weight on his body so as to humble him. And the idea here is, we see it fulfilled in Christ, what happened when Christ was upon the cross? This great weight was laid upon him. This great weight, it's all of the sins of the world. 
and what was happening. He was on that cross, and we see all the exterior of what has happened as far as the scourgings and the spittings and the piercings and so on and so forth. But really what was happening was the Father bringing judgment upon the Son, upon sin, but the sin had been placed upon Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, speaks of the Lord who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. And so the idea here is if he, if this future son is bent over by a great weight, if sin is placed upon his body, the father says, I will punish him. And we see the house that was really being established is the church is the church in this dynasty that was to last forever. Now, the church will not be forever here on earth, but it will be forever in existence. And so God's promise, God's promise through the generations of King David fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, of which we are experiencing the benefits of that even today. And again, it's one of these small miracles that we've got to realize that as God did this great work, and he's made these amazing promises to these kingdoms. Now, in King David's day, it was a, it was a pretty big kingdom. But Israel, once again, was pretty much a, a, a small kingdom. It was a small society, an insignificant nation, but it's a nation that God did great things. As a matter of fact, even as he was leading them through the wilderness and they came up to the very doorstep, he reminded them of something. It's not going to be on the board, but in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, God speaking to his people, and it's as, take this personal as if he is speaking to you. He says in verse 6 of Deuteronomy 7, For you are a holy people to the Lord. In the sight of God, the idea here is you're separated from everybody else. These were his chosen people. They were separated from all the nations of the world. You are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more than number than any of the other people, for you were the least of all people. But because the Lord loves you, God just simply loves us because he loves us. He loves Israel because he has chosen to love Israel. And so you think of yourself out of a crowd of people of all humanity. Why would God choose you? I mean, we could all look at you today and we could probably wonder the same thing. Why did God choose them? You should look in the mirror and you should wonder the same thing. Why did God choose me? But the reason he did was just simply because he he loves us. And that's the beauty of the love of God. The beauty of the love of God is it's just simply to be received. God so loved the world, but not all of the world is going to receive of the love of God. But just to understand the magnitude of the love of God, it was displayed upon a cross, displayed upon a cross that reverberated throughout all of the ages. And it was that one moment back 2,000 years ago that changed the history of the nations. And in that, we see the reality of this promise that God has made, the reality of what has occurred upon the cross. And 
the change that he has made in our lives today. And because of that, we should rejoice. We should come to that understanding and just praise the Lord. Well, that's what David does. In verses 16 through 17, I'm, I'm going to read through it, but David is understanding the basis of the magnitude of what God's doing. Again, this is a little understanding with not knowing the end. We're able to look back and see it from a different perspective and understand what God has done. But look at the heart of David who breaks out in praise here. In verse 16, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and so I don't know if he's in prayer, what he's doing, if he went into the area of the tabernacle, but nonetheless the idea is he's seeking the Lord here. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? Just an amazing thing. And again, we should look down upon ourselves and realize that, who, who am I? But in the question of who am I, you should also understand the magnitude of the grace of God as well. Verse 17, And yet this was a small thing in your sight, O God, and you have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come and have, regard me, and have regarded me according to the rank of man of high degree, O Lord God. What more can David say to you for the honor of your servant, for you know your servant? O Lord, for your servant's sake and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness and making known all of these great things. O Lord, there is none like you, nor is there any God beside you according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel? One nation on the earth whom God went to redeem for himself as a people to make for yourself a name by great and awesome deeds, by driving out nations from before your people whom you redeemed from Israel. For you have made your people Israel your very own people forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. Have you ever sat down? Have you ever taken the time just to sit by yourself to understand that, okay, that here I am, God hears the prayers of his children, hears the speech of his children, and not just to utter off a prayer, but what David is doing is he's contemplating the blessings of God. He's meditating on the works of God and the things that God has done, and he's verbalizing these things to the Lord. When we do these things, it brings us to a higher awareness of the goodness that God has brought into our lives. And again, we need to be people. We've got to remember the blessings that God has given, that he has provided for us. He's provided our housing, our clothing, and our food, and every need that we've ever had, God has provided that for us. He's kept us for this day, and he will keep us for the future days according to his will and for his great purposes. We just celebrated our birthday here, 20 years as Calvary Chapel, Ontario. And as I'm looking back through these 20 years, especially as we were preparing the service for last week, I just kept seeing the hand of God and the hand of God. A lot of faces that have come and gone, and some were hard, you know, people that came and and left. But the one who stayed through the whole time was the Lord. And again, allow praise to break through because of that, because of the health that we have, such as we have, and we're all in in different places, and, and the families that we have, and just all that God has done. Verse 23, And now, O Lord, the word which you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning this house, let it be established forever and do as you have said. Now, what has happened is God has spoken to Nathan. Nathan has spoken to David. 
But make no mistake about it that David's joy and his praise comes from the word of God. Now, a prophet, a prophet wasn't about speaking the future so much. A prophet was about speaking the will of God to his people. And this is the basis for why David is praising God is the word of God. Verse 24, so let it be established that your name may be magnified forever, saying the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, is Israel's God, and let the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O my God, notice how David is making this very personal, have revealed to your servant that you will build him a house. Therefore, your servant has found it in his heart to pray before you. And now, Lord, you are God and have promised this goodness to your servant. Now you have been pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue before you forever. For you have blessed it, O Lord, and it shall be blessed forever. What David is coming to the realization is not just what God is able to do and going to do. He's understanding the magnitude of the grace of God. Because David knows that he is undeserving of this, but God has chosen him. He's taken him off of that mountain in the sheepfold, and he's brought him to be the most powerful king in the world at that time. Then we enter into chapter 18, and starting at verse 1, we have these two words, after this. After this? After what? After dwelling in his house, and the Lord gave him a rest from all of his enemies after God has given him great promises that he should be encouraged by, the Lord gave him this time to hear and to digest the promises that were delivered by the prophet. The word was given to David so that he would be prepared for one thing, to enter back into the battle, to enter back in and face the enemies of God. Now, we get a, a visualization here of actual enemies that were on the borders of Israel and even amongst the people, but we need to equate it to the spiritual battle that we fight as well. Because just as David had great promises that were delivered to him for those future blessings and even the current blessings, we've got great promises that are even greater in magnitude, but we have to enter back into the fray at some point, at some time. The reason God gives you Sundays is to prepare you for the battle that begins on Mondays. The battles, the battles that we need to enter in as we fight the good fight. The battles as we seek to raise godly children or grandchildren. The battles of the enemy that confronts us. And we've got to be proactive in our Christian life. Remember Jesus said that the gates of hell will not prevail. That means that we will be able to storm the gates of hell and that they will not be able to hold us back. We see what's going on in our world and even our country today. And we see, seems like the enemy is winning. Well, you have to ask, is the church pushing forward and taking the battle to the enemy? Or are we still just sitting back? Are we still kicking back? Or are we pushing forward? We need to consider that individually, but we need to consider it collectively as well. If you don't fight the enemy at your border, he will soon be kicking down your door and he will disturb your rest. There's times of rest, but there's got to be times of moving forward as well. 
In chapter 18, verse 1, After this it came to pass that David attacked the Philistines, subdued them, and took Gath and its towns from the hands of the Philistines. So God has promised him this great kingdom. He's promised him these great promises and victories and so on and so forth. But it was necessary for David to be proactive still to go out and to attack. And as he did, he saw the victories come to life. Gath is the capital of Philistia, And as David is pushing forward against the enemy, it's those whom God has led him to, and he is not going to be intimidated. We'll see as we finish the study tonight, even those enemies that were filled with giants. How is this relatable to us? Well, who are the enemy today? Who is it that we are to be attacking? Well, there was a man, and this came in the early 70s. I always thought that this came from a prime minister or something, you know, Winston Churchill or something like that. But this quote really came from a cartoonist in the early 70s. We have met the enemy, and he is us. Well, that rings true in our Christian life. I've met the enemy as far as in the domain that God has given me to fight. As God has called me to push forward, my greatest enemy is really myself. It's myself and it's my flesh. It's myself and the world as it stands against me. It's myself and it's pride. These obstacles that are necessary to be overcome in order to push forward against the enemy. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 16, we're told to not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. And it's those things that we've got to overcome. We were looking at that, at that this morning in First Peter in chapter 2, in the first three verses there. And those things that we must overcome in order to push forward in what God has called us to do. Next week we'll be looking at this great building that God is constructing through the body of Christ. But unless we're obedient to what God has called us, unless we're willing to fight the enemies, to face the flesh, to face the world, and to face the devil, we'll not see victory. So next we see the battle of the Moabites in verse 2. Then he defeated Moab, and the Moabites became David's servants and brought tribute. Moab's very existence sprang out of feelings of the flesh motivated by sin and a lack of trust in God. We're not going to turn there, but it's in Genesis chapter 19 as Lot was told to get out of Sodom and Gomorrah and he waited and finally the angels took him and pulled him out and judgment came. Well, Lot was not supposed to be in in those cities, but he was. And and, and when you bring your family into these places of the world or faces of the flesh, it's going to have an influence upon them. Now, their daughters thinking that, okay, all the cities of the world are going to be destroyed. We'll never have husbands. We'll never be able to repopulate. What do we do? Well, they decided on a very worldly, a very fleshly concept of, of... incest basically well it's what it was and Moab came Moab and Ammon came from that relationship and they would forever torment Israel so again we see these battles these battles against the things that torments God's people 
And then in verses uh, 5 through 11, well, actually verse 3, we see Zoab and then Syria, the wars against, again, the enemies that are on Israel's borders, as David was a man who was proactive, not leaving anything to chance. Now, it's important to notice that there's an undercurrent here, and this undercurrent of what's going on isn't a good thing. David, as much as he had a heart for the Lord and the things of the Lord, the sin that he committed in his life, the areas of disobedience that he had in his life, will come back to haunt him. We kind of saw a little bit of that in his marriage with many wives, as I pointed out. Many wives bring many children, and his children became a hardship in his life and the issues that they had to deal with. Well, in the midst of spiritual victories, and David is achieving many here, and it's, again, it's kind of an undercurrent to what's going on, we've got to be careful of worldly results as well. Now, back in Chronicles chapter 14, verse 3, it says, Then David took more wives <clears throat> excuse me, in Jerusalem, and David begot more sons and daughters. So David multiplied wives there. And then in chapter 18, <clears throat> verse 4, it says, David took from him 1,000 chariots, 7,000 horsemen, and 20,000 foot soldiers. David hamstrung all the chariot horses, except that he spared enough of them for 100 chariots. And then if you look down at verse 11, King David also dedicated these to the Lord along with the silver and gold that he had brought from all of these nations, from Edom, from Moab, from the people of Ammon, from the Philistines, and from Amalek. And so David, a man with many wives, David, a man with quite a few horses, and David, a man with a lot of riches. Well, this is in direct contrast to what God had warned the king in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 16 through 17, we've looked at this many times. But the king, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, be turned away. Nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. David David's allowing a stumbling point in the kingdom of Israel that pretty much every other king that follows him is going to trip over. We've got to be mindful of leaving these tripping points in our houses. God specifically told them, don't multiply wives. David's multiplied wives. Don't multiply horses. He's multiplied horses. Don't multiply riches. He's multiplied riches. What's the problem? Well, Wives, multiply wives, we've seen it before. You're going to see the effects in your children. You'll see the effects in your house. So your, your house isn't right. As far as horses, horses were a show of strength. But where was David's strength supposed to be? David's strength was supposed to be in God and that he would constantly be praying to God and seeking the Lord out and the power of God and not the power of himself or the power of these horses. And then riches... Riches, once again, it, it speaks of power, but it speaks of independence as well. And David was not to do that. His dependency was to be for God, to God, for his daily bread. 
And so we've got to be careful of the things that God speaks to us as we study God's word, that we would understand what God desires of us, because whatever causes me, whatever causes you to stumble, will also cause the people of your household to stumble. I've got to search and I've got to make sure that I have purity in my personal life, but also in the household that I have leadership or influence over. As much as depends upon me, and it's got to be a team effort, in my particular case with myself and my wife, we need to maintain that purity. We've tried to do it all of our lives, all of our Christian lives. And we have to put forth the effort because great will be our fall if we don't. Chapter 19, it happened after this. After what? After the victories achieved, David now goes on a bit of a kindness kick. Verses 1 through 5, it happened after this that Nahash, the king of the people of Ammon, died and his son reigned in his place. And David said, I will show kindness to Hanun, the son of Nahash, because his father showed kindness to me. So David sent messengers to uh, comfort him concerning his father. And David's servants came to Hanun in the land of the people of Ammon to comfort him. And the princes of the people of Hanun said to Hanun, do you think that David really honors your father because he has sent comforters to you? Did his servants not come to you to search out and to overthrow and to spy out the land? Therefore, Hanun took David, and look what, you know, he humiliated them. <clears throat> Therefore, Hanun took David's servants, shaved them, and cut off their garments in the middle at their buttocks and sent them away. So he's insulting the king by insulting his people. So <clears throat> David's heart is stirred when he hears of the death of this fellow king, Nahash. Now, this is the Nahash that encamped against Jabesh Gilead <clears throat> and wanted to pull, put out the right eyes of the men who were there. They laid siege to the city, and they, the city finally asked him for terms of surrender, and he told them, for all of your military-age men to come on out, and we're going to put out their right eye and put out somebody's right eye would render them useless in battle. But David wants to be reflection of God to all men. But when it comes to being kind to the enemies of God, it just doesn't work out so well. Samuel had previously set the example when King Saul was given some orders. King Saul was told to go and to kill the Amalekites. He was told to completely wipe them out. Why? Because he, as he didn't do it, they became a curse to Israel. Matter of fact, it was even an Amalekite that boasted. He didn't kill Saul, but boasted of killing Saul. But in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 32 through 33, Samuel has, well, actually Saul has come to Samuel, and he's hearing all these animals. They were supposed to kill all the animals. He's got this king as a trophy of war. He was supposed to kill all the people. And, and finally, he's asking what is going on, and Saul gives him this big excuse. And then finally, Samuel said, Bring Agag, the king of the Amalekites, here to me. So Agag came to him cautiously. So Agag was very concerned about his own life. And Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, As your sword, speaking to this king, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless amongst women. And Samuel hacked Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgah. Have you ever hacked anybody to pieces? <laughs> I hope not. But I can imagine what a disgusting, 
bloody mess, a grotesque thing that that must be. But really what the picture here is, God has commanded them to kill all the Amalekites. Why? Because it was going to spiritually destroy them, really physically destroy them, but there's a spiritual picture here as well. And it's those things that we allow into our lives that cause us to stumble or maybe bring sin into the camp or whatever that's going to drag, drag us down or, or drag us away from the Lord. And it's those things that we've got to destroy in our lives. We've got to be of that mindset to, to take them out. Jesus said, hey, if your right eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to stumble, then, then cut it off. Now, he's not advocating plucking eyes or cutting hands. But he's saying go to an extreme to foster an environment of holiness in your realm of influence. And so you must consider through yourself, through your children, through your spouse, whatever, what are the things that are entering into your home? You've got the TV. What are the things that are entering in as far as TV shows as they line up to Scripture and the influence that they're bringing into your home? As far as the internet and the influence of the internet that brings into your home, what are the things that you're bringing in? What are the things that members of your family are bringing in? With my kids, it was always not that they weren't culpable themselves, but, you know, the CDs that we wouldn't buy or whatever, they were getting from other kids and bringing them into our home. And so it had to be something that you were constantly aware of. And when you see that, you need to cut it off. You need to cut it off. Paul told young Timothy to flee youthful lusts. Flee things that you're unable to stand against. Well, here we're taking it to another level. Destroy that which you're unable to stand against. Incompleteness or nicety does not abode well when it comes to the enemies that we fight. We are to be ruthless in the battles that God has given us to fight. Skipping over to chapter 20 now, a couple of things. First, verses 1 through 3. It happened in the spring of the year at the time that kings go out to battle that Joab, Joab would be David's main general, led out the armed forces and ravaged the country of the people of Ammon and came and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem and Joab defeated Rabbah and overthrew it. Then David took the king's crown from his head and found it to weigh a talent of gold, and there were precious stones in it, and it was set on David's head. Also he brought out the spoil of the city in great abundance, and he brought out the people who were in it and put them to work with saws, with iron picks, and with axes. So David did to all the cities of the people of Ammon, and David and all the people returned to Jerusalem." Really what you see here is it seems to be David's victory, but it's really David's defeat because when it happened in the spring of the year that kings go out to battle, well, it says Joab went out, but we know David stayed home. There's a parallel section in Second Samuel chapter 11. This is the time of the Bathsheba incident. David was supposed to be going out and fighting the spiritual battle. But again, what happens when you're not out being proactive and fighting the battle that God has set before you? You're soon to be overrun by the enemy. When it's time to go out to battle and you're staying behind, don't be surprised if the devil does not bring the battle to you. And that's exactly what happened as David was just out lounging around. And this is exactly how it's laid out. When you go to Jerusalem, you see the temple. And then below where the temple mount is, 
there's the traditional place where David's house is, and then below that it goes in tiers, and it goes downhill from there, if you will. So you can see if David was out on a patio, if he was out on the roof of his house, he could look down on all the other roofs, and he happened to see this one young lady, Bathsheba, taking a bath there, and long story short, he impregnated them. But since that's not all included here, we're not going to dig into that. But what you need to see is the contrast here of David, who decided to stay home, stay behind, and his men who were out in the field. David, David was in the most dangerous place, this place of inactivity. David's men, they struggled to stay alive as they were fighting the good fight. David struggled to get out of bed. David's men struggled to go on fighting. David struggled to go on sleeping. David's men fought against fierce defenders. David was flirting with their wives. Interesting fact, the description of Bathsheba tells us, if you look in 2 Samuel chapter 11, that she was good-looking. And this is a word that only appears twice in the Scripture. The other place that it appears is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. These trees that are pleasant to the sight. Well, what was that tree, that Eve, that caused her to stumble? It was pleasant to her sight. Bathsheba was pleasant to the sight of King David. What did it bring? It brought death and destruction. And you see, David's inactivity, this event happens, and what was the result of it? David's got to do something. Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba's husband, he tries to manipulate a situation. It doesn't work. So what does he do? He sends him out into the battlefield, and he tells Joab, in the heat of the battle, when you guys are up there and you're fighting close to the enemy, pull back from Uriah and the rest of his company, whatever it is, and allow them to be killed, basically, is what he said. And that's what happened. Not only was Uriah the Hittite murdered because David had an affair with his wife, but so were these other guys as well. And this man David, a man after God's own heart, how could he do such a thing? Well, we could all do such a thing in such a situation. And so the devil unleashes an insult on man's greatest enemies against David, and David is ill-prepared to make a stand against the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, or the pride of life. But what we do see, though, is in the remainder of this chapter is the victories that not only was David able to achieve, but David was a man, and this is a key, he was a man who was able to inspire others for godliness. I mean, we see a great example of that in the Psalms as we read through the Psalms and we see just David's relationship with the Lord. This imperfect man, as we are all imperfect, but nonetheless, he had a heart for God and it was expressed in his writings. It's also expressed here in verses 4 through 8 in the influence that he was, ha- was able to have on others. And we kind of looked at this concept before, but just as David was able to face and to kill his giants, the, the enemy that seemed bigger and more ferocious than he was, he inspired others to do the same. Now keep in mind that David, when he went down to fight Goliath, he took five rocks with him, and part of the reason for that might have been some of these relatives of his, of Goliath, that we're looking at here. It says in verse 4, Now it happened afterward that war broke out in Gezer with the Philistines, at which time Shebekai, the Hushahite, uh, killed Siphi, who was one of the sons of the giant, 
and they were subdued. So one of Goliath's sons, verse 5, again, there was a war with the Philistines, and Elana, the son of Jair, killed Lami, the son of Goliath, the Gittite, and the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Yet again, there was war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature. Now think of this guy. This guy had 24 fingers and toes, six on each hand and six on each foot. And he was also born to the giant, the son of Goliath. So when he defeated Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, killed him. These were born to the giant in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Now, I'd never really thought about it, just figured it was something big, but what is the shaft of this spear, this weaver's beam? What is a weaver's beam? Now, I looked it up. A weaver's beam would be something that you would, kind of like that chair rail, that white chair rail there, only it would be this beam. This beam would be about, two to two and a half inches thick. It usually was round. It's probably from a tree or whatever. And they were, depending upon what you were doing, they were anywhere from six feet to 12 feet long. And it was attached to the wall. And if you were weaving something, you would attach it to that beam. And more than one person could even attach something to that beam and you would do their, do your weaving. But it would be something that would be hard for the average man to make a spear out of and to be able to manipulate in battle to move it quickly because it would be something that is heavy. And so we have these giants and you've got this huge javelin or this huge spear that was the size of a weaver's beam. And so people of that day would know exactly what they were speaking of. And so we see a picture here of how spiritual gives birth to spiritual and flesh gives birth to the flesh. You see Goliath and his sons. You see David and the ones he was able to influence. And we see the victories that the Lord brings. David was willing to stand up and face his giant, so he inspired others to face theirs. The giants, guys, they just weren't getting it. They kept fighting against the army of God, and they just kept losing and kept coming back for more. Turn in your Bible, and I'm going to close over here in Romans chapter 8. When it comes to the battle that we fight and the war that we rage, I want you to kind of see what this is based upon. First of all, the battle and the war that we fight, the spiritual battles that we fight, based upon prayer, seeking God out and the will of God. In Romans chapter 8, verse 27 Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And that's the Holy Spirit's part in our prayer as we're directed in the way that we should go. And so as I am going into the battles, I'm entering into the battle tomorrow as I'm praying, even God will direct my prayer. What is it that you're facing? What giant is set before you that you're going to have to face possibly tomorrow or next week? Lift it up in prayer. Verse 28 is the knowledge that we have as we enter into the battle. And we know, you're able to know this. This is to God's people. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. So the battle and the results of the battle are going to work together for the good. And so that just tells me that my responsibility is to enter into the battle and to fight the battle. And regardless of what the results are, 
God will make the determination that it is good and God will work it towards the good. Verse 29, again we see the foreknowledge of God here. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn amongst many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Well, a description of David is that God has called him called David. He called David even while David was a shepherd boy up in the uh, ministering to the flocks. God had predestined for this greatness. He called him and as he called him David was also justified by God seen just as if he had never sinned. There's a whole issue of David's repentance and coming back to a right relationship with God. And these he also glorified just as truly as he set David on a throne in that glorious nation. He'll do the same with us. Verse 31, and what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for you, if the best of your determination you have prayed, that you want to make the situation and circumstances of your life turn out to the good in God's sight, understanding that you're a child of God, if God is for you, then who can be against you? Well, that's a question left floating in the back of your mind as we go through the rest of these verses. He did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things or all victories? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore, it is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Then Paul says here, as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. What he's saying is we've sacrificed so much because we understand that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Verse 37, in the hardships that you enter into and the battles that you fight, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded, I have come to full knowledge, that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And what he's saying there is there's nothing, there's absolutely nothing that can separate you from the love that God has for you. Can you see the magnitude in that in which we fight from the standpoint of victory? He's told us we are more than conquerors as we are more than conquerors. Whatever it is that God has called us to face, we should do so in full confidence of what he's able to do. Father, once again, we just thank you, God, that you have given us your word and these great and rich promises. Father, King David is placed there just as an example, an example of what you'll do in all of our lives. Yeah, not the throne of Israel, but the throne of the dominion in which you have called us to. And I pray, Father, that we would have a confidence in that and an understanding of who you are and all that you're able to accomplish. And again, Father, we fight from that standpoint of victory. We are more than conquerors. If God, if you are for us, then nobody can truly be against us. And so, Father, I pray that we would have that confidence about ourselves in the things that we struggle with and in the battles that we fight. 
And so, Father, I pray that you would be glorified through our humble efforts. And as you are, God, we would just see the, we would see the borders of the kingdom of heaven just truly expanding, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you all stand, please? couple of announcements. I forgot to announce it this morning. Sean did, and then Sal announced it tonight. But we were taking interest sign-ups for a men's small group. We haven't had a midweek men's small group in a while. This will be for Tuesday nights at 7 o'clock, the same time that the women meet. And so, guys, if that's something that you're interested in, we've got a sign-up sheet at the sign-up table. And also, children, we're having a children's play for Christmas, kind of a traditional thing. And they're passing out little information sheets in children's ministry. And so if your child wants to be in that, you see the commitment that's necessary there. Other than that, God bless you guys. Have a great week. Choose to say
Lord, blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name, Jesus. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name, Jesus. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. Jesus, your glorious name. Amen. Blessed be his name. Have a good night.